Section ten of a book of scoundrels by Charles Wibley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thomas Pureney. Thomas Pureney, Archbishop among ordinaries, lived and preached in the heyday of Newgate. His was the good fortune to witness Shepherd's encounter with the Topsman, and to shrive the battered soul of Jonathan Wild nor did he fall one inch below his opportunity. Designed by Providence to administer a final consolation to the evildoer, he permitted no false ambition to distract his talent. As some men are born for the gallows, so he was born to thump the cushion of a prison pulpit, and his peculiar aptitude was revealed to him before he had time to spend his strength in mistaken endeavour. For thirty years his squat, stout figure was amiably familiar to all such as enjoyed the liberties of the jug. For thirty years his mottled nose and the rubicundity of his cheeks were the ineffable ensigns of his intemperance. Yet there was a grimy humour in his forbidding aspect. The fusty black coat which sat ill upon his shambling frame was all besmirched with spilled snuff and the lees of a thousand quart-pots. The bands of his profession were ever awry upon a tattered shirt. His ancient wig scattered dust and powder as he went, while a single buckle of some tawdry metal gave a look of oddity to his clumsy, slipshod feet. A caricature of a man, he ambled and chuckled and seized the easy pleasures within his reach. There was never a summer's day but he caught upon his brow the few faint gleams of sunlight that penetrated the gloomy yard. Hour after hour he would sit, his short fingers hardly linked across his belly, drinking his cup of ale, and puffing at a half-extinguished tobacco-pipe. Meanwhile he would reflect upon those triumphs of oratory which were his supreme delight. If it fell on a Monday that he took the air, a smile of satisfaction lit up his fat, loose features, for still he pondered the effect of yesterday's masterpiece. On Saturday the glad expectancy of to-morrow lent him a certain joyous dignity. At other times his eye lacked lustre, his gesture buoyancy, unless, indeed, he were called upon to follow the cart to Tyburn, or to compose the last dying speech of some notorious malefactor. Preaching was the master passion of his life. It was the pulpit that reconciled him to exile within a great city, and persuaded him to the enjoyment of roguish company. Those there were who deemed his career unfortunate, but a sense of fitness might have checked their pity, and it was only in his hours of maudlin confidence that the Reverend Thomas confessed to disappointment. Born of respectable parents in the county of Cambridgeshire, he nurtured his youth upon the exploits of James Hind and the Golden Farmer. His boyish pleasure was to lie in the ditch which bounded his father's orchard, studying that now-forgotten masterpiece, There's no jest like a true jest. Then it was that he felt immortal longings in his blood. He would take to the road, so he swore, and hold up his enemies like a gentleman. Once, indeed, he was surprised by the clergyman of the parish in act to escape from the rectory with two volumes of sermons and a silver flagon. The divine was minded to speak seriously to him concerning the dreadful sin of robbery and having strengthened him with text and good counsel, to send him forth unpunished. "'Thieving and covetousness,' said the parson, 
must inevitably bring you to the gallows. If you would die in your bed, repent you of your evil doing, and rob no more. The exhortation was not lost upon Purney, who, chastened in spirit, straightly prevailed upon his father to enter him a pensioner at Corpus Christi College in the University of Cambridge, that at the proper time he might take orders. At Cambridge he gathered no more knowledge than was necessary for his profession, and wasted such hours as should have been given to study in drinking, dicing, and even less reputable pleasures. Yet repentance was always easy, and he accepted his first curacy at Newmarket with a brave heart and a good hopefulness. Fortunate was the choice of this early cure. Had he been gently guided at the outset, who knows, but he might have lived out his life in respectable obscurity. But Newmarket then, as now, was a town of jollity and dissipation, and purely yielded without persuasion to the pleasures denied his cloth. There was ever a fire to extinguish at his throat, nor could he veil his wanton eye at the sight of a pretty wench. Again and again the lust of preaching urged him to repent, yet he slid back upon his past gaiety, until past and purity became a byword. Dismissed from Newmarket in disgrace, he wandered the country up and down in search of a pulpit, but so infamous became the habit of his life that only in prison could he find an audience fit and responsive. And, in the nick, the chaplaincy of Newgate fell vacant. Here was the occasion to temper dissipation with piety, to indulge the twofold ambition of his life. What mattered it if within the prison walls he dipped his nose more deeply into the punch-bowl than became a divine? The rascals would but respect him the more for his prowess, and knit more closely the bond of sympathy. Besides, after preaching and punch he best loved a penitent, and where in the world could he find so rich a crop of erring souls ripe for repentance as in jail? Henceforth he might threaten, bluster, and cajole. If amiability proved fruitless, he would put cruelty to the test, and terrify his victims by a spirited reference to hell and to that burning lake they were so soon to traverse. At last, thought he, I shall be sure of my effect, and the prospect flattered his vanity. In truth, he won an immediate and assured success. Like the common file or cracksman, he fell into the habit of the place, intriguing with all the cleverness of a practised diplomatist, and setting one party against the other, that he might, in due season, decide the trumpery dispute. The trusted friend of many a distinguished prig and murderer, he so intimately mastered the slang and etiquette of the jug, that he was appointed arbiter of all those nice questions of honour which agitated the more reputable among the cross-coves. But these were the diversions of a strenuous mind, and it was in the pulpit, or in the closet, that the Reverend Thomas Purney revealed his true talent. As the ruffian had a sense of drama, so he was determined that his words should scold and bite the penitent. When the condemned pew was full of a Sunday, his happiness was complete. Now his deep chest would hurl salvo on salvo of platitudes against the sounding-board. Now his voice, lowered to a whisper, would coax the hopeless prisoners to prepare their souls. In a paroxysm of feigned anger he would crush the cushion with his clenched fist, or leaning over the pulpit-side, as though to approach the nearer to his victims, would roll a cold and bitter eye upon them, 
as of a cat watching caged birds. One famous gesture was irresistible, and he never employed it, but some poor ruffian fell senseless to the floor. His stumpy fingers would fix a noose of air around some imagined neck, and so devoutly was the pantomime studied that you almost heard the creak of the retreating cart as the phantom culprit was turned off. But his conduct in the pulpit was due to no ferocity of temperament. He merely exercised his legitimate craft. So long as Newgate supplied him with an enforced audience, so long would he thunder and bluster at the wrongdoer, according to law and the dictates of his conscience. Many, in truth, were his triumphs. But as he would mutter in his garrulous old age, never was he so successful as in the last exhortation delivered to Matthias Brinsden. Now Brinsden incontinently murdered his wife, because she harboured too eager a love of the brandy-shop. A model husband, he had spared no pains in her correction. He had flogged her without mercy and without result. His one design was to make his wife obey him, which, as the scriptures say, all wives should do. But the lust of brandy overcame wifely obedience, and Brinsden, hoping for the best, was constrained to cut a hole in her skull. The next day she was as impudent as ever, until Matthias rose yet more fiercely in his wrath, and the shrew perished. Then was Thomas Purney's opportunity, and the Sunday following the miscreant's condemnation he delivered unto him and seventeen other malefactors the moving discourse which here follows. We shall take our text, gruffed the ordinary, from out the Psalms. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. And firstly we shall expound to you the heinous sin of murder, which is unlawful, one, according to the natural laws, two, according to the Jewish law, three, according to the Christian law, proportionably stronger. By nature tis unlawful, as tis injuring society as tis robbing God of what is his right and property, as it is depriving the slain of the satisfaction of eating, drinking, talking, and the light of the sun, which is his right to enjoy. And especially tis unlawful, as it is sending a soul naked and unprepared to appear before a wrathful and avenging deity, without time to make his soul composedly, or to listen to the thoughtful ministrations of one, like ourselves, soundly versed in divinity. By the Jewish law tis forbidden, for is it not written, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed? And if an eye be given for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, how shall the murderer escape with his dishonoured life? Tis further forbidden by the Christian law, proportionably stronger. But on this head we would speak no word. For were you not all, O miserable sinners, born not in the darkness of heathendom, but in the burning light of Christian England? Secondly, we will consider the peculiar wickedness of parricide, and especially the murder of a wife. What deed, in truth, is more heinous than that a man should slay the parent of his own children, the wife he had once loved, and chose out of all the world to be a companion of his days? the wife who had shared his good fortune and his ill, who had bought him, with pain and anguish, several tokens and badges of affection, the olive branches round about his table. To imbrue the hands in such blood is double murder, 
as it murders not only the person slain, but kills the happiness of the orphan children, depriving them of bread, and forcing upon them wicked ways of getting a maintenance, which often terminate in Newgate and an ignominious death. Bloodthirsty men, we have said, shall not live out half their days, and think not that repentance avails the murderer. Hell and damnation are never full, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20 and the meanest sinner shall find a place in the lake which burns unto eternity with fire and brimstone. Alas, your punishment shall not finish with the noose. Your end is to be burned, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8, to be burned, for the blood that is shed cries aloud for vengeance. At these words, as Puny would relate with a smile of recollected triumph, Matthias Brinsden screamed aloud, and a shiver ran through the idle audience which came to Newgate on a black Sunday, as to a bull-baiting. Truly the throng of thoughtless spectators hindered the proper solace of the ordinary's ministrations, and many a respectable murderer complained of the intruding mob. But the ordinary, otherwise minded, loved nothing so well as a packed house, and though he would invite the criminal to his private closet, and comfort his solitude with pious ejaculations, he would neither shield him from curiosity nor tranquillise his path to the unquenchable fire. Not only did he exercise in the pulpit a poignant and visible influence, he boasted the confidence of many heroes. His green old age cherished no more famous memory than the friendship of Jonathan Wilde. He had known the great man at his zenith, he had wrestled with him in the hour of discomfiture. He had preached for his benefit that famous sermon on the text, Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. He had witnessed the hero's awful progress from Newgate to Tyburn. He had seen him shiver at the nubbing sheet. He had composed for him a last dying speech, which did not shame the king of thief-takers, and whose sale brought a comfortable profit to the widow. Jonathan, on his side, had shown the ordinary not a little condescension. It had been his whim, on the eve of his marriage, to present Mr. Puny with a pair of white gloves, which were treasured as a priceless relic for many a year. And when he paid his last forced visit to Newgate, he gave the chaplain, for a pledge of his esteem, that famous silver staff which he carried as a badge of authority from the government, the better to keep the people in awe and favour the enterprises of his rogues. Only one cloud shadowed this old and equal friendship. Jonathan had entertained the ordinary with discourse so familiar, they had cracked so many a bottle together, that when the irrevocable sentence was passed, when he who had never shown mercy expected none, the great man found the exhortations of the illiterate chaplain insufficient for his high purpose. As soon as I came into the condemned hole, thus he wrote, I began to think of making a preparation for my soul, and the better to bring my stubborn heart to repentance, I desired the advice of a man of learning, a man of sound judgment in divinity, and therefore application being made to the Reverend Mr. Nicholson, he very Christian-like gave me his assistance. Alas, poor Puny! He lacked subtlety, and he was instantly baffled when the great man bade him expound the text. Cursed is every one that hangeth on the tree. The shiftiest excuse would have brought solace to a breaking heart and conviction to a casuist brain. Yet for once the ordinary was at a loss. 
and Wilde, finding him insufficient for his purpose, turned a deaf ear to his ministrations. Thus he was rudely awakened from the dream of many sleepless nights. His large heart almost broke at the neglect. But if his more private counsels were scorned, he still had the joy of delivering a masterpiece from the pulpit, of using all the means imaginable to make Wilde think of another world, and of seeing him as neatly turned off as the most exacting ordinary could desire. And what inmate of Newgate ever forgot the afternoon of that glorious day, May the 24th, 1725? Mr. Purney returned to his flock, fortified with punch and good tidings. He pictured the scene at Tyburn with a bibulous circumstance which admirably became his style, rejoicing, as he has rejoiced ever since, that though he lost a friend, the honest rogue was saved at last from the machinations of the thief-taker. So he basked and smoked and drank his ale, retelling the ancient stories and hiccuping forth the ancient sermons. So in the fading twilight of his life he smiled the smile of contentment, as became one who had emptied more quarts, had delivered more harrowing discourses, and had lived familiarly with more scoundrels than any devil-dodger of his generation. End of section 10